Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today and the opportunity to go through your word. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the interpretation of the book of Revelation, that you would help us, that you'd help us to be better students of your word, also that we may be better conformed to the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, recall last week, uh, if you were here, you remember that we were talking about how Jesus was the greater warrior, a warrior much like Joshua and David, who was one day in the 70th week of Daniel going to destroy all of the demonic hosts that we've been reading about in Revelation chapter 9. And so we saw evidence that he is depicted in Scripture as the greater Joshua and the greater David, the supreme warrior. Well, this week we're continuing on in Revelation 9, and we're going to examine a couple of interpretive implications for this book. Number one, we're going to see that the judgment of releasing demons here in Revelation 9 points to the fact that demons are fallen angels. So we're going to work on a doctrine that's not often talked about, demonology. Who are they? Where do they come from? Second, this judgment also proves that this must be in the future. Why? Because these things have never occurred in history. And so this passage, believe it or not, helps us to know that the futurist interpretation of Revelation is the correct one. How many times have you been to a Bible study that says, well, we're not sure if the preterist, the idealist, the historist view, we don't know. We'll just study it and we won't get into anything controversial. Well, you're going to see today that this passage helps us know the futurist interpretation, that the events from Revelation 4 all the way to the end of the book are events that will happen in the 70th week of Daniel, that that's the proper interpretation. So with that, let's begin. We left off, remember, in Revelation 9, 5, so we'll just kind of read verses 4 through 6 here together. Revelation 9, 4 through 6, it says, They were told, now these would be the locusts, who are the demons, they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. I want you to think for just a moment how horrible this is going to be. There are going to be locusts who come out of the abyss who are going to sting human beings for five months. That's what the text is saying. And so this is unprecedented. This is the most horrific thing that has ever occurred. And what's very interesting is we're given evidence here in Revelation 9 that what God is doing on a grand scale is he's doing a reversal. And what I mean by that with the reversal is when you look back at what happened to Judah, specifically Jerusalem because of their sin back in 586 B.C., what happened to them? Well, they were sacked by the Babylonians. And what's very interesting is Jeremiah chapter 8, God said through the prophet Jeremiah that in those days, that is in 586 B.C., the people of God, because of their sin, would rather die than experience what they had experienced. And so verbatim, you have almost the same thing happening now in Revelation 9. It's so horrific that people long to die rather than to suffer. But notice here, it's not the people of God. It's now the world. And so you see there's a reversal. 
back in 586 B.C., God was chastising his people, Israel, to be more specific, Judah. But now there's judgment coming upon the whole world. And so what we know then, even you can read about this in 1 Peter 4, 17, that judgment begins with the people of God. But it doesn't end there, does it? And the judgment upon the people of God is for our good. We know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he uses all things to conform you to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28 points to this. But we know there's a day that's coming in the 70th week of Daniel where judgment is going to be exclusively on the unregenerate. So notice, it's only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, that is unbelievers, that are going to suffer this very torment. Okay, very important to know. Now, one other point I want to make, in fact, let me pull up my laser pointer. I always usually get in trouble when I pull it up. I shut down my computer one time. Notice the demonstrative pronoun when he says, and in those days. Everyone see the those? The demonstrative pronoun here, akenes, indicates that it's those days. Now, here's an interpretive point. If, in fact, John had written these days, I would assume that he would be lumping history, the time of history that he is in, with what's happening. But notice he puts it off to those days. And that's another subtle fact that points out that this has never occurred, at least till the time that John was writing. Okay, when was he writing this? Well, 95 AD. Okay, so remember there are preterists who say that all of these things occurred in 70 AD, or that these historists say that they're happening in church history. If they're happening in church history, why doesn't he say, and in these days, men will seek death and will not find it? But he pushes it off to those days. And so that helps us also to understand that he's looking forward to a future period of time where these things will come about. Okay, it's not about things happening now. It's things that are going to happen within the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. I think that's another important interpretive point. Okay, let me get rid of my laser pointer without shutting my computer off. Ah, I think I did it. All right, now let's look at the appearance of these locusts. Verses 7 through 10, it says, The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tail is their power to hurt men for five months. Now, this is obviously very horrific. The world has never seen anything like this. Again, all of it coming out of the abyss. Now, one thing I want to point out here is when we look at the appearance of these locusts, what we have here is, I think, further evidence that these are demons. Now, here's why. What's interesting is when we read our synoptic Gospels, whether they be Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the demons often will possess different things like swine. Here, they look like locusts. Revelation 16, 13, they look like frogs. Now, the reason I point that out is I think it gives more credence to the idea that these are, in fact, demons because demons can take on various forms. Okay, 
they were inhabited swine. They're going to look like frogs. Here they look like locusts. I also want you to understand that here, John is using what we would call phenomenological language. Notice everything I have highlighted red is a simile. Okay, so what's the importance of a simile? Well, notice he says that they're like horses. They appear to be crowns like gold, etc. Well, when he says they're like horses, he's not saying they are horses. They're like horses. And so you have nine, I think, if I counted them right, nine different similes. So what John is using is he's using phenomenological language to tell us something about what these demonic beings look like. Now, what's phenomenological language? Well, we use language in our day and age the same way. And the reason I'm mentioning this is you'll have a lot of critics of the Bible who are typically leftists who will say, well, who can believe the Bible? Look, it says all these things in phenomenological language. Well, how many here have ever heard a weatherman say that the sun is going to rise tomorrow? Now, does anyone ever call the TV station and say, look, are you a geocentrist? Do you think that everything revolves around the earth? Well, nobody ever does that because they know he's talking with phenomenological language. It appears to us that the sun rises, even though we know it's the earth is rotating on its axis. If the the reporter had to say, now the earth is going to rotate on its axis such that tomorrow at 7.02 a.m. you're going to see the sun. That would get rather redundant, wouldn't it? Well, in the same way, the Bible often uses phenomenological language. It just tells us, well, this is what it looks like. Okay? So what here John is describing, I dare say, is one of the more frightening things that has ever been described. Demonic beings that look like these things. Can you imagine looking like a horse with the hair of women and being able to sting people. Dear ones, this is very frightening, but again, it only occurs and happens to those who do not believe. Yeah, Brian. When the demons went into the swine, they didn't change the appearance of the swine. They were swine. Yep. And what I want to say is that for me to take this literally, which I can, is... When you look at the animal kingdom that God has created, there is some bizarre-looking things (laughs) out there, under seas, in different places, where I've seen fish that look like a baby's face, okay? I mean, there is just deep water... uh, uh, Not uh, a very good-looking baby. Yeah, (laughs) deep deep water... All babies are good-looking, yeah. Deep water photography, close-up... pictures of certain animals it's phenomenal so you would say looking at that wow that looks like a this or the fuzz on that looks like it could be this right and and it's not a stretch at all for me yeah well thank you you know and that brings up a good point what we're looking at here is not something that we should say well this is a this animal or a that animal in fact let me give you a quote from robert thomas i thought this was very astute he said this he said quote these creatures are not the product of nature but they are creatures of supernatural origin. And again, this is somewhat unprecedented because normally you and I living now during the church age, we don't have the intervention of the supernatural realm into the natural realm. It's a rarity if it occurs. Well, of course, here it's going to be quite ordinary to have the supernatural intervene into the natural. And that's what's being revealed to us. These are creatures that no one has ever seen, and that's why John is describing them with phenomenological language. Again, where is their origin? 
it's the abyss. These are not normal locusts. Where do locusts come from? Well, they come from the Earth's you know, habitation, right? These came out of the abyss, as we saw last week. Now, notice also in verse 9 here, it says the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. I'll um, stop there. Go ahead. I, I hear you, and I, I just thought of more support to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it, is it possible that it's just a human thing that we just can't fathom the unseen world? Because in Ezekiel chapter 1, yeah. he says he's seen visions of God, and there was a lot of that terminology, the like, it was like this and it was like yeah. that too. Well said. Yeah, he's, he's trying to describe it using phenomenological language. Exactly right. Um, I'm glad that you point that out because in the Old Testament, you see very similar language to even what we see here as far as the chariot wheels. In fact, turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And you'll see further support that, yes, John is borrowing from Joel to a certain degree. These things are going to be unique. But there's a building off of what happened in Joel as we talked about last week. As you're turning to Joel chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, remember last week we said that the locusts that Joel wrote about represented human armies? Okay, they were real, but they were also symbolic of the northern army that would come. And who ultimately was behind the northern army? The demonic realm. Because Satan wants to wipe out Israel. Well, here in the book of Revelation, the locusts are again real. But what's interesting is when we get to chapter 16, you're going to have human armies surround Jerusalem. And who's behind it? The demonic realm. (laughs) Okay, so you see the very same pattern, and that's what John wants us to see. So notice here in Revelation 9, verse 9, the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, Joel 2, 4 through 5. Listen to the appearance of the locusts. He says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. So you see much of the same imagery here as Joel is describing the locust and then not just the locust, but the northern army. That's what he's talking about here. So in the same way, the locusts are real here. They're real demons, but they're going to eventually bring about the human armies just like happened in the book of Joel. Now, there's some implications, I think, here to this text that are important. One of the questions it raises is, if these are demons, what are demons? Okay, we're going to define that. This is something that you normally never talk about, demonology. It's not our favorite subject as Christians, but it comes up. And I think this is a passage that helps us understand what they are. Now, demons, the term in the New Testament, demonion, comes from this idea in Greek literature of a ruler. Um, Everyone can hear almost the term dominion. Well, it has to do with a ruler who was uh, assumed to be a deity in Greek culture. But the question is, how does the New Testament use the term demon? Well, I think that there's two valid options. The first option is that they are fallen angels. And in my opinion... That's the best option for demons. So broadly speaking, let's just put it together for a moment. Here's what I think. I think God created a divine council which are comprised of angels. That's the language the New Testament would use. Of those angels, a third of them apparently fell with Satan and rebelled. 
they become demons. Of those, a third, some of them went after women and created the Nephilim. They are locked away in the abyss. But some did not, some demons did not go after women. And therefore, they were affecting people even during the time of Christ. Remember, he's casting out demons. So of demons, which are fallen angels, you have two categories. One category went after women. They're locked away in the abyss. The other did not. So what we're looking at here in Revelation 9 is the angels that went after women are locked away. Now they're coming out again. Okay? Now, the reason this comes up here, if these are demons that are being let out of the abyss, we know that it was angels that were locked away in the abyss. Does everyone follow me? If these are demons who are coming out of the abyss, who was locked away in the abyss? Well, angels were. How do we know that? Well, Jude 1.6. Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay, now, when is the great day? The great day is the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel. It's not just a 24-hour period. I think he's talking about the broad day of the Lord here. And so the idea here is that the angels were the ones who went after women and they were locked away in the abyss. Well, those are the ones that are coming out. So if we can prove that these are demons that are coming out of the abyss, well, we know then the demons are fallen angels because clearly Jude is saying that they're angels. By the way, 2 Peter 2.4 would be another reference that teaches the same thing. Let me give you a second reason why I think demons are fallen angels. Notice here in Job 1, 6 through 7, Bob has talked a lot about this passage. I'm sure we'll come to it again. Here's Satan before God wanting to sift Job. Job 1, 6 through 7, it says, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? From where do you come, rather? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So notice here, Satan is an angel. And he's obviously a fallen angel, and he's roaming about on the earth. Now, didn't Jesus have to deal with demons during his earthly ministry? He cast out demons from people. And I would presume that they're also roaming about the earth, just as Satan was. And so if Satan is an angel who's roaming, I would assume that other angels can also roam. Okay, so what I'm trying to show is that, well, these demons, if they're angels, they seem to be doing what Satan does. That's what I'm trying to point out. Third reason, there are similarities in manifestations, as I mentioned earlier. I won't have you turn your Bible to this right away. In fact, we'll look at other Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 8, well, in fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 8. We'll do it anyway. I haven't had you turn your Bibles much. Matthew chapter 8. I got a lot on this, but let me just skip down to verse 31 for you. So Matthew 8, 31 through 32. The scene here, remember, is Jesus is casting these demons out. And I want you to see what he does with them. Verse 31. It says, The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Verse 32, and he said, go. Then they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. We'll just stop there. Now, in the Jewish mind, what does the sea represent? 
It's literal here, right? It's a literal sea. They went to the sea, but the sea also represents the abyss. And so the idea is Christ is sending the demonic to the point of destruction, which he has the authority to do. And what it shows us is that the intent of these demons was for the destruction of those who are demonic-possessed. In other words, it's not good intentions that they have for humanity. It's to destroy them. Why? Because they destroyed the swine that they inhabited. But here's our point. Notice they inhabited swine. Here, in Revelation chapter 9, they look like locusts. And again, in Revelation 16, they look like frogs. So there's different manifestations that these demons are able to take on. That would seem to correspond to what we're examining here in Revelation 9. Again, if we can prove in Revelation 9 that these are demons, we know that the demons are fallen angels. Why? Who was locked in the abyss? Jude 6, the angels were, the fallen angels. Okay? Now, let me have you turn your Bible. Well, before we do that, let me give you a fourth reason. Four times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark uses the phrase unclean spirits. Now, what's very interesting is many of you probably realize this, but Mark was not an apostle. Peter was the apostle that stood behind Mark's writing. So if I were to put Mark in a category, I would call him a prophet. Remember the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's not talking there about Old Testament prophets. He's talking about New Testament prophets. If he wanted to say Old Testament prophets in Ephesians 2.20, he would have said it was built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. He doesn't say that. He says it was built on the apostles and prophets. So Mark is a prophet. He speaks and writes the very words of God when he writes. He's inspired by God. But where did he get his data points from? Well, according to Eusebius, the church historian, he was the translator for the apostle Peter. So there's a close connection between what Mark is saying and what Peter says. Now, why is that important? Well, four times in Mark's writings, he talks about the demons being unclean spirits. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 19. I want you to see that those who are locked away in the abyss, the angels, are also called spirits by Peter. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. You'll often hear Bob and I use verse 18 for the gospel. For Christ also died, Peter says, for, for sins once for all. There's hapax, once and never again. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, so notice there in verse 19, who is locked away in the abyss? Well, the language that Peter uses is spirits. Okay, well, those are the, that's the same terminology that Mark uses for the demonic realm. He calls them spirits. In fact, Matthew does the same thing. So what I think it's safe to say is that spirits are interchangeable with demons with Mark and Peter. Okay, now, let me give you one more example that'll tie this together that'll show you that that connection is true. Spirits and demons are one and the same in the New Testament. So if the spirits were locked away in the abyss, according to 1 Peter 3.19, we know that those spirits are demons, more than likely. From Jude 6, we know that the angels were locked in the abyss. 
Therefore, the angels are synonymous with demons. Does everyone see the logic there? Let me show you one more passage that will pull this together. Turn your Bibles to Luke 10, 17 through 20, and we can camp on this passage for a while so you can keep it open. Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. Remember, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he certainly has the 12 that were apostles, but he has a wider group of disciples, the 70, or as some versions say, the 72, that he sends out. They have his authority, and they are going out to do his ministry. And so one of the ideas when Messiah comes on the scene is that according to Isaiah 35, 5, the blind will receive their sight, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, etc. But one of the images also that was prevalent was the idea when Messiah comes, because he is God, the demonic realm will be subject to him. Well, now Jesus here in Luke 10 is giving that authority to this wider group of disciples. Notice what happens, Luke 10, 17. It says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now stop there. Notice they don't brag that the demons are subject to them because they're great and spiritual people. But he says, they say, the demons are subject to us in your name. So the authority comes from Christ. He's the Lord of all. Verse 18, it says, And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So let's stop there. Notice in verse 17, these spirits are called what? They're called demons. They're rejoicing that the demons are subject to them. Jesus, in verse 20, says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. So therefore, in the New Testament, within our Gospels, I think it's fair to say that these spirits or unclean spirits are synonymous with demons. If that's true, according to 1 Peter 3.19, who was locked away in the abyss? Spirits. According to Jude 6, they're angels. If spirits are demons, then demons are fallen angels. That's the logic, okay? So I think when we look at our demonology, I think we have to conclude that from the data, demons are more than likely fallen angels, locked away in the abyss, and they're the ones who come out. Now, as I say that, let me give you a second option. And this is an option that I think has credibility, but I'll show you some, uh, some flaws in it. The second option is that the demons are disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Now, what in the world does that mean? Okay, so remember, in Genesis 6, the angels come down, they cohabit with women, and they create a race called the Nephilim. Okay, the Nephilim, those who would hold this view, would say they're not fully human, but they're also not fully angelic. So their reasoning is that they really have nowhere to go when they die. So like Goliath. When he dies because he's one of the Nephilim, normally the spirit of the deceased either goes to Hades for an unbeliever or goes to be with the Lord if you're a believer, 2 Corinthians 5.8, right? But what they would argue is that the Nephilim is something different and therefore the spirit has nowhere to go. They just roam about the earth 
and do nasty things. Okay, and it's these, and these spirits then that Jesus is casting out that are demons. Now, one of the reasons that they would cite as to why this must be the case biblically is because you can't boss angels around. Okay, now what evidence would they give? Well, remember in Jude 9, we have this passage talking about Michael the archangel. It says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Okay, so here you have Michael the archangel. He's an angel, and he won't boss another angel around. And we've made a greater to lesser argument, or maybe we say it's a lesser to greater probably a greater to lesser. Michael the archangel who's greater than us will not boss another angel around. How much more should you and I who are less not boss an angel around? We don't have the authority to do so. Now, here's the point. When the disciples are casting out demons, and if the demons are angels, the proponents of this view would say, well, human beings have no business bossing angels around. Did everyone catch on to that? Now let's go back to our text in Luke, Luke 10, 17. Luke 10, 17, it says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So here you clearly have human beings casting out demons. So therefore the logic is these must not be angels because even Michael the archangel can't boss angels around. How much less can you and I as human beings do it? Okay, so... Here would be my rebuttal to this, and this is why I think the logic falls. Notice, when the 70 cast the demons out, they are boasting that the demons are subject to us in your name. So here, you don't have just human beings having the power to boss angels around. They were given that authority by Christ himself. Remember in Matthew 10, 45, when Jesus commissions his 12, he says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever does not receive you does not receive me. Well, these 70 are sent out with the same authority. So they have the very authority of Christ himself. In fact, go back to your Luke 10 passage that you have still open, hopefully. Notice in Luke 10, 18, I'll just read 18 and 19 again. Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Verse 19, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Where does the authority come from? It didn't come from human beings. It came from the Lord. So when Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you, well, Jesus is the Lord and he is rebuking them. He's casting them out. Okay, so I don't think that that objection then has merit. I think the best evidence would suggest, yes, human beings were casting out demons given the authority by Christ. And therefore, yeah, we got a couple right here, sir. Um, I, I agree with what you said, Eric. Would another reason be that the Nephilim in the Old Testament, when God wiped them out, when he had the, the Jews utterly destroy them, yeah. they bled. I mean, they, they bled and they were sure. dead. And yeah. unlike a... Uh, angel, that you that wouldn't happen that way. God would relegate them to the abyss. Sure. So, yeah. Again, I you know when we get into the metaphysics of it, um, 
That may be. I, I, what I'm trying to do, I guess, Brian, is argue just from the data of Scripture, I and mean, just to say, how does the New Testament seem to use the term spirits, demons, and angels, and is there any equivalency? The reason why I pause at that is because I don't know how the Nephilim are comprised. I just don't know the metaphysics behind it. Do you know what I mean? Um, I would assume, when, like you said, Goliath died, Goliath died he bled. But um, whether or not that has any bearing on, you know, whether the departed spirit is a demon, I just don't know the metaphysics behind it. So, yeah. Eric. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Genesis actually calls them men. Yeah, exactly. They're men of renown. They're human beings. Yeah, exactly. They're men. All right. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, I have a, actually a question, and I'm, I'll just tell you how I'm interpreting what you're saying, and yeah. I just want to make sure I understand this right. Uh, the reason that these 70 were able to cast out demons, it was in the name of Jesus. Jesus specifically gave them permission exactly. at that time. Exactly. And, and I'm going and, and like to kind of make an application, yep. which I don't know if this is right or not. Yeah. It was specific. Jesus gave those specific people. You know, exactly. I probably had better not go try to cast out demons. Yeah, I would agree, exactly. Okay. And that's one of the points that we've been making is the way to be saved from the demonic realm after the advent of Christ isn't by trying to cast them out, it's by believing the gospel. Amen. So, for example, when we look at Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, all of the armor of God is related to the gospel. So the way that we stand against the demonic foe isn't by trying to cast them out, it's by believing the gospel. And we're transferred once and for all from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and so we're forever safe. But in the inbreaking of the messianic age, Messiah demonstrates that he's God. Why? He raises the dead. He heals the sick, the blind see, the deaf hear, and even the demonic are subject to him. And so how dare the Pharisees say, this isn't God in our presence. No, he is. Messiah, the God-man, has come. And yet, they, even though they saw all this evidence, they rejected him. But yeah, it was designed to show Christ is the Lord of all. But they remember they say that he cast him out by the power of Beelzebul. Yeah, but well said. It was this specific example, the 70 was given that authority for that specific time by Jesus. I won't press it forward for today. Yeah, Bob, you had something. Sorry. <laughs> if you jump ahead one <clears throat> chapter in Luke, yeah, you go to verse 17. Or before that, talking about Beelzebul. Yeah, yeah. Beelzebul, ruler of the demons. Yep. And uh, they said, well, he's just using Satan to cast out Satan. Exactly. And Jesus said, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For, I say, for you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, Beelzebul, who is your sons to drive them out? They had some weird, yeah. They had some weird exorcist practices that weren't legitimate. But he says, verse twenty: If I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Exactly. Now, Eric and I did a six-part series yes. on freedom in Christ. Amen. It's on CICMinistry.org, and. I think most of them have been broadcast. Maybe a couple haven't yet. And it's all based on Colossians 1, 13 and 14. But in Colossians 1, it says here, the kingdoms come on you. See, people, some people today think you get free by exorcists casting demons out of people. But according to Colossians 1, 13, 
He rescued you and transferred you from the authority of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then in Acts 26, 18, Jesus told Paul that people would be transferred from the domain of darkness and uh, and under the authority of Christ. And it says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But you are of God. If you you are born of God, the evil one doesn't touch you. I have been spending, dear ones, 18, 19, 20 years trying to convince my CIC readers they don't need an exorcist. (laughs) People don't want to believe they've been delivered. But Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So why were the disciples doing this? Was it therapy for Christians? No. To demonstrate that what this is being said is true. Yeah. The kingdom of God comes to bear through the King Jesus, Amen. who rescues people and delivers them and removes them totally out of Satan's domain Amen. and sets them free as redeemed and forgiven. Amen. And they just need to believe that. Yes. And uh, so we're not doing this demonology so that somehow we can create a new bunch of shamans and right. witch doctors. <laughs> exactly. But so that you know you are free. Amen. That's and right. And just believe the promises of God. Amen. Well said. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. Well, I hope it, I hope it lasts because I'm going to preach. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bob. Yeah, well said. That's exactly right. And what's interesting, too, in that text you read, Bob, notice he talks about the kingdom of Satan. Again, remember in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, who is what's hell created for? Satan and his angels, right? So I would assume the kingdom of Satan is comprised of his angels. That's further corroboration that demons are fallen angels. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add too because I find this real helpful because in the book of Mark uh, sixteen. Uh, 9 through, what is it, 20? Yeah. In my Bible, it kind of separates it out, saying it may not have been in the text. It was not original. But in there, in 16, 17, it says, in my name they will drive out demons, and then it says they will pick up snakes, they should drink anything deadly, and it won't harm them. But so there still is collaboration. It kind of helps me know what to do with this verse in Mark that they, or this section in Mark that they say really wasn't there, or may not have been. Exactly. I I think we can conclusively say it wasn't there because um, remember we have let's just talk about the ending of Mark 16 verse 8 is the end of it he ends with the resurrection appearance what we know from 9 all the way to the very end the ending that's been added it was an added ending why because of our manuscript evidence see when the King James version came out remember there was only eight manuscripts that the the kingdom or the um, King James translators had okay only eight eight copies of manuscripts. Well, now we have over 5,000 today. So the vast, vast majority and the earliest have no ending of Mark from verses 9 on. So it ends at verse 8. Now, why is that important? Because as you just read, that very thing that was stated about cast, having the authority to cast out demons and tread on snakes, that was given to the 70 or the 12 as they went out, but it's not something that's given to all Christians for all time. And that's why... Um, what Eric was pointing out is exactly right. This was limited 
for the messianic ministry as he gave them at that time to go out. There's no evidence that we're ever commanded to do those things. Okay, so how do we resist then Satan? We stand in the gospel. Bob wrote a whole article about that out of Ephesians 6, the armor of God. We believe the promises of God, just as he pointed out, we're going from one domain, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of the beloved son. So that's how we're protected. So very good point. I'm glad that you raised that. Yeah. Does that make sense, Luban? Are you, okay, good. Yeah, Norm. Yeah, um, going along with that and what Bob was yeah. saying, as far as uh, from a believer's perspective, you know, we've been transferred from the kingdom of in darkness into his domain and so yes. forth. And, but going on in Colossians 14 and 15, where it talks about, you know, at the cross, and when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, yeah. having triumphed over them through him, yeah. I think that's very, very relevant that we don't, that, that's where the victory came. Yes. And as believers, we don't have to be afraid. Amen. Well said, Norm. In fact, we, we see evidence in this text in Revelation 9 for that very thing, Norm, because notice, who can the demons affect? It's only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So here, even the people who become believers during the 70th week of Daniel, they're protected from the dominion of Satan by the sovereign power of God. So even further corroboration that that's exactly right. Yeah, and in Colossians 2, where are the rulers disarmed? At the cross. Amen. They have, why? Because Satan can't bring any accusation against us. He could, he could before the cross say, yeah, they're lawbreakers. Where's the atonement? They have to suffer. But now, after Christ and the cross, he has nothing to say. It's all been paid by the blood of Christ. Amen. Well said. Yeah, Mike. Um, going back uh, to the uh, scorpions and snakes, yeah. um, don't they symbolize demons? Exactly. They're, they're not, the, the 70 were not out stomping on snakes and scorpions. They're just symbolizing That's that. exactly right. So I think you're right. Yep. It's all misinterpreted when we have people handling snakes and drinking poison and, and everything else. Yeah. And then in regards further evidence that, you know, the ending of Mark after verse 8, if you look at some of the earlier manuscripts, that pericope, that section of, of Scripture was actually found in four other places. There, it, was, it was a section of Scripture that the somehow they were looking for a home for it. And yes. It's just further, further corroboration of the fact that it's not part of the earliest and best manuscripts. Well said. That's exactly right. And I hope that doesn't offend some um, who are a little newer to the manuscript evidence issue uh, or part of the King James only movement. They're somewhat, somewhat offended. They think, well, you must have a low view of Scripture to think that that doesn't belong. No, we have a high view of Scripture. Why? Because the manuscript evidence that we have is so good today, we know that that wasn't original. Okay? So we know that Mark leaves off at the resurrection, and that's it. Why? Because of the manuscript evidence. We are getting closer every day to the originals. So think about what we believe as evangelicals when we talk about our doctrine of inspiration. We believe in what's called the verbal plenary doctrine of inspiration. Verbal means every word was inspired by God. Plenary means the whole thing. But it was the original autographs that were inspired as the apostles penned them or their designates, the prophets. Okay? Now, do we have any actual autographs? No, what we have is apographs. Apographs were copies of the original. We're so blessed because every day that goes on, we get more good apographs to get us back to what the originals were. So we're getting closer to the original text, not further away. In fact, Dan Wallace, probably the leading scholar in linguistics and on uh, manuscript evidence, he is going to come out with a book soon that shows we have now a new papyri, and I think it's from Mark, 
that dates, remember the earliest was 125 AD, uh, Ryland's Papyrus, I believe it was called. Well, we're going to have one that dates, they think, between 70 and 90 AD. Yeah, now I don't know how they do that. I don't know how, how do you do that kind of dating with carbon dating? I'm not sure. But anyway, um, they're convinced that it dates that early. So we're getting closer. So I just want to give you comfort if that bothers you. No, we're getting closer to the original, not further away. So with that, well, for the sake of time, we better keep going. But great questions and discussions. Thank everyone. This is wonderful. <coughs> so here, let me just conclude with this part. I think the data is clear that the demons are not the departed spirits of the Nephilim. I think the data suggests that they're really fallen angels. Okay, again, two groups of demons. One went after women. They're locked away in the abyss. They're the ones who are coming out now in Revelation 9. The other demons were not locked away, and they can still affect people today. Okay, again, they're angels. That's how I would see, see it. Okay, now let's go to another major interpretive point. I want you to think about the description of these demons. They're from the abyss. We read that last time. They're locusts. They look like horses. They appear to have gold crowns, hair like women, teeth like lions, breastplates like iron. They, their wings make noise like chariots. They have tails like scorpions. That doesn't sound too good to me. Okay? Now, the question, though, that this brings up, I think we should ask this of the text. Has this ever occurred in history? I would assume that if you had demons come out of the abyss that looked like this and stung every single person on the planet except those who had the seal of God on their forehead, I would assume some historian may have made a side note of that. (laughs) Okay? Now, why... Why is that important? Well, I want you to think about this. The biggest problem with the book of Revelation today in evangelicalism is its interpretation. Now, why do I say that? Let me give you an example. I have a sister-in-law. I love her dearly. She was saying she's going to a Bible study with Revelation. And I said, well, what kind of approach do they take? Is it a futurist, historist, idealist, you know, etc.? She says, no, we don't get into any of that because we don't want to be controversial. Okay? Now, just bear with me. I'm on the way here one night. Wednesday night, we're going to have, I think it was corporate prayer. And I'm listening to a very prominent pastor, and I love this guy, and I, I don't want to embarrass him, so I'm just going to not use his name. But the issue was, is he said, you know, he was in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 talks about the millennial kingdom. And he gave the different views, and he did a nice job summarizing them. But he said at the end, he says, at the end of the day, he goes, I'm pan-millennial. And what he means by that is it will all pan out. Well, you know, everybody laughed and clapped. But again, yeah, it is goofy because the idea is the evidence is so clearly pre-millennial. Let me give you a quote from John MacArthur. John MacArthur said, are we going postmodern when it comes to the end times? What do postmoderns do? They say, you can't know. Oh, yeah, you have the text of Scripture, but you can't know what it is anyway. And so John MacArthur said, when it comes to the ending, has God muddled it? Has God muddled it to the point where we can't even know what it says? Oh, well, just throw our arms up in the air. Okay? Believe it or not, Revelation 9 points us to the futurist interpretation. Why? Well, let me put up the different views. The idealist version. This is the idealist approach to understanding the book of Revelation. Let me read you their own definition. They say, quote, this is from an idealist uh, website. They would say there's no correlation between the visions and any historical reality, that these are simply symbols of an ongoing struggle between good and evil, unquote. 
So according to the idealists themselves, they look at the book of Revelation not as something that happens in history. It's just generally symbolic of this battle between good and evil. Well, right away, that smacks of dualism. What is dualism? Well, it's certainly not Christianity. You see, dualism is a Greek thought where what you have is you have two opposites. It's also Eastern, yin and yang. And so you have just, you have good and you have bad and they war and it just never really resolves. No, that's not the biblical conception. The biblical conception is that there is an all-powerful God and all of creation that he created is subject to him. And guess what the book of Revelation teaches? He wins, okay? So the idealist camp really has more in common with Eastern doctrine than it does with biblical Christianity. What's more, idealism has to take every text of scripture in Revelation and allegorize it. Therefore, who is the ultimate authority as to what the text means? It's not the biblical author, it's whom? It's the reader. Exactly, so the reader determines the meaning, not the author, because you can make it mean whatever you want. You just read it as symbols. Now, let me give you the second camp, the historist camp. This was the view of the reformers. They saw the Pope as the Antichrist. They see the Pope behind everything in the book of Revelation. Listen to their statement here. Quote, Revelation gives us a bird's eye view of the entire sweep of Christian church history from the post-Pentecost church from Acts 2 until Jesus returns. Okay, so that's their view. So the historist view says that all of the things we're reading about in Revelation happened during the church age. Well, let me ask you, when did these demons that look like locusts and have the appearance that they do, when did they come out and sting people for five months? Now, someone might argue, well, that just hasn't happened yet. But realize the historists gave an answer. In fact, some of them claimed that it was Muhammad's invasion. That's what some of the historists claimed. Well, if we're going to be that arbitrary, why wasn't it Napoleon's invasion? or Hitler's invasion, or Stalin's invasion. Why does the evidence suggest that it's Muhammad's invasion? Do you see, it's arbitrary. Why? Because they're not going by the author's intent. The reader's now determining the meaning. And that's what our reformers held to. Okay? Now, let me get to the preterist position. The preterist position believes that all of these things have already occurred in history, particularly around the time of 70 A.D., in fact, let me, listen, let me give you a citation from Ligonier Ministries. Quote, they say, Revelation speaks of judgment coming upon Israel for her rejection of Messiah. Most things, they say, occurred all the way, uh, that were fulfilled from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. Okay, so what they would say is what we're reading about are things that happened to Israel around 70 A.D. Well, when were there demonic beings that look like locusts, that look like horses, that sting people with the tails of scorpions, so much so that they longed for death for five months and it only impacted the unbelievers. I would think that some historian may have noted that in a side note. Okay, so it didn't happen. So notice now we have evidence from the text itself that no, none of these approaches make sense. Now, can you imagine going to a Bible study where you say, well, it could be Muhammad these demons or the, the things that come out of the abyss or it could be something that happened in 70 AD and so you just throw your hands in the air and you just go away and you never have any meaning behind the text if you don't have meaning behind the text you have a meaningless text 
I hate to point out the obvious. If you have a meaningless text of Scripture, who inspired it? Well, God did. So now you don't know what God has said, and there's no power. So what I'm saying is that because these things have never happened, of course it proves the futurist position. Now, within the futurist position, we even have disagreements. Let me give you one that I think this clarifies. Within the futurist position, the futurist position that is all of the things that we read about in Revelation from chapter 4 to 22 are things that are going to happen within the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. Some people call it the seven years of tribulation. There's a lot of agreement there. But in the futurist position, there are some who take the Olivet Discourse, and when they read the Olivet Discourse, they say these things are about the church age. Okay, now let me just give you a passage that I think has been abused. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. This is an Olivet Discourse passage. Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, I pointed this out in Revelation 6. When we're looking at the sealed judgments, you have a quarter of the earth's population die due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. Has that ever occurred? No. We're going to be coming up to the next judgment where you're going to see a third of mankind die. Has that ever occurred? No. Has, have you ever seen locusts and all these things occur in history? No. So certainly, when Jesus talks about the greatest time period of tribulation ever, he's talking about this time period. I always tell people you can't have the worstest, right? There's only the worst, and Jesus says this time period that he's referring to is the worst. Well, I would say locusts that come out of the abyss that look like horses have the hair of women that sting you with a scorpion's tail, that's about as bad as it gets, okay? (laughs) It's not going to get any worse than that. All right, so Jesus certainly then is talking about this future time period. Now, why do I point that out? One of my hermeneutics texts that I had to buy when I was in seminary came from a man named Craig Blomberg. I love the man. 99% of the time I agree with him. However, he takes the Olivet Discourse in his New American Commentary uh, commentary series that he's writing about. How many here have ever heard of the New American Commentary series? I know Bob has and Mike, yeah. Well, anyway, it's a commentary series very popular today. It's very good. But listen to how he comments on what Jesus has said just in the passage that I put before you. Craig Blomberg, he says, quote, At least in Matthew, however, it would seem that the tribulation Jesus has in mind must refer to the entire church age from 70 AD on. So he's he's saying that all of the discourse is about the church age as well. Well, Jesus says this is about the worst time period ever. Well, again, when did the demons come out of the abyss? That never happened yet in church history. So, again, I think that this is a passage, and when we're reading Revelation 9, it's evidence that these things have never occurred, but they're going to occur. Why? Because God says they have. Remember, this isn't just apocalyptic language we're reading about where we can just make the symbols fit anything we want. John himself calls the book of Revelation a prophecy. If prophecy was literally fulfilled, all of them for the first advent of Christ, are they not going to be fulfilled for the second advent as well? So we have to take these things literally, yeah. I think there's an important point that we can learn now, okay? Yeah. I have been fighting mysticism for 30 years. Yeah. And we keep fighting it. But most of the church, including people we normally agree with, want to be mystics. They want to go into an altered state and contact the spirit world. 
They have techniques. They have meditative techniques. They'll do whatever they can do to get in contact with the world of the spirits. We have yeah. devotionals like Jesus Calling. Yeah. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Right. It's a false Jesus from the spirit world. Yeah. Okay, here's what's going on. Uh, Satan is called an angel of light. All right? So the emergent and the many mystics who have their prayer shawls, prayer labyrinth, meditative techniques, they're all saying, this is so wonderful. I feel so close to God. I feel so spiritual. I'm so full of peace. It's so wonderful. What they don't realize is what Revelation 9 is saying no, you don't want you don't know. <laughs> this is what you're getting in contact exactly. with, but it's being hidden from you. Right. This Mercifully. is the angel of light version. These are wicked things that want to destroy you. Yes. Now, to prove that, when I preached through Revelation back in 1999, yeah, the thing that really struck me in Revelation 9, we haven't got to yet. Yeah. After all this happened, you know what it says? And they did not repent repent (laughs) of their sorceries. Yes. They, after even knowing how utterly horrific and wicked these spirits really are, they're not the warm fuzzies you get in a monastery. (laughs) They're wicked. And even when they find that out, they lust for contact with the spirit world so badly that they say, well, we want to try it again. Maybe it'll work better. Yeah, that's right. That's how utterly deceived and in bondage the people in the world are. And we need to tell them the true gospel. Flee. Yeah, amen. Jesus Christ is giving you a way out. Amen. You don't have to be under this. You don't have to be deluded. Come to Christ. He's in charge of all of this. He will save you. He'll protect you. You'll be free, and you will not come under this horrible thing. So why is it in there now when it doesn't happen until the future? So we know the true nature of what we're dealing with, and we flee to the gospel. That's right. You know, Bob, as you're saying that, well said. Um, I was thinking about how this is all going to be tangible. What's intangible is all going to become tangible in the 70th week. Well, the mystics today want it to become tangible now. And like you're pointing out, is they don't even know what they're asking for. So again, when, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back tangibly. He's coming back bodily. Okay, so why are people looking for a cosmic Christ? Well, it's because it's a Christ that they can manipulate. Why are they trying to get into contact with the spirit realm? These things are going to come tangibly, but they're trying to make it happen before the time, and they're getting into contact with demonic beings. I know we're out of time. Let me just hit a few points here. I want to show you one thing before we leave off. These demons have a king. Notice here in Revelation 9:11 through 12, it says, They have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and the Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, the two, two woes are still coming after these things. Notice these demonic beings have a king over them, the king of the abyss. 
What's very interesting is in Proverbs 30, verse 17, it says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. So obvious to all of humanity was it that locusts have no leader, there's no pack leader, no queen bee, as it were, that it became a proverbial statement that the locusts have no king. And again, that's further corroboration that these aren't normal locusts. Yes, they look like locusts, but how many locusts that you've ever dealt with had as the, their leader, they don't have a leader here, but the king of the abyss? That would be a bad locust. You might want to get some serious inspect, insect uh, <laughs> <laughs> repellent or something for that one, right? So further evidence that, yes, these are really demonic beings. They're coming out of the abyss. Now, the other thing is Abad and Apollyon both mean destruction. Apollyon has the root apolumi. Bob knows this term. It means destroy. And by the way, destroy doesn't mean annihilate. The Bible never talks about destruction in that way, okay? But that's what the king is named. And I don't think it's necessarily Satan. It could be. Um, he's known as the destroyer in other places. But it would be very, uh, Satan is going to become very prominent later. It would be an odd way to bring him up in this way, okay? I think it's just another angel, a wicked angel that was given authority, okay? Now, the other thing I want to point out is we're coming to two more woes. We're just looking at the first woe. And we'll examine those next time. So next time I'll leave off with the, I'll, or I'll begin with the structure of the three woes. So, dear ones, here's the bottom line. The Revelation 9 helps us interpret our Bible. It helps us know, I think, what demons are. And it gives us a clue as to the fact that these things have never happened before. Therefore, the book of Revelation must be speaking about things in the future. The futurist interpretation is the interpretation that does justice to the text of the book of Revelation. With that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can look in to your word and that we can find truth about who you are and about what you've required of us. I pray, Heavenly Father, for uh, all my brothers and sisters here that you would help them persevere into that day that you break through the clouds and you come to bring them resurrection and life eternal. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to grope around in the dark as the mystics and the unregenerate world and the pagans do, but that you've given us your truth, that we can know that you win and that your glorious kingdom will come and prevail over the demonic forces. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks. That was fun. Thanks, Bob.